Good morning, church family. For it's wonderful to see all of you here today for week number two of our study through the book of Acts. As today we will once again be in Acts chapter 1, and we will be looking specifically this morning at verses 12 through 26, or when Matthias is chosen to replace Judas, which takes place, church, nearly, or really, after an action-packed first half of Acts chapter 1, where the author of Acts, Dr. Luke, shared that Jesus Christ not only presented himself alive to his apostles after his resurrection from the dead, verse 3, by many proofs, appearing to them in intervals over a span of 40 days and teaching them about the kingdom of God, but he, Jesus Christ, also then told his disciples in verse 4, not to depart from Jerusalem, but instead to wait there for the promise of the Father, that promise being the gift of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but Jesus Christ also made clear to them in verse 8 that they, his apostles, would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and that they would be his witnesses, in essence, that they would share what they have seen in the life, the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and also proclaim then the significance of it all as taught to them by Jesus Christ as well. And that they would do all of that, verse 8, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Since the kingdom of God was for people, groups from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, church. To which, after sharing all this with his apostles... Jesus Christ then, as we saw in verse 9, was lifted up and ascended into heaven, ultimately to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which in essence put an end, church, to Jesus' earthly ministry and began then, church, that of Jesus' heavenly ministry. And yet as we go on to see that while Jesus' apostles were gazing into heaven as he, Jesus Christ, went up, Two angels then, as Luke implies in verse 10, stood by them and said to them, as Luke writes in verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Clearly affirming here that this Jesus Christ who was taken up into heaven, that he would also then one day come again from heaven as well. Which takes us now, church, to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this, God is sovereign, and thus his word and his will will always be accomplished. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this, God is sovereign, and thus his word and his will will always be be accomplished. And thus at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you, as our gift to you this morning. However, if you do indeed take and keep one of our church Bibles this morning, we do ask that you read it 
which you can start doing today, right here, right now, by turning that brand new Bible of yours to page 909, and by joining us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we will be in Acts chapter 1 this morning, church, and we will be looking specifically at verses 12 through 26, where Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120 in all and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can come together this morning and to worship you as a church family. Father, I thank you for all the wonderful voices that you have given these dear ones here today that are able to sing praise to you, Father. I thank you that so many people are willing to bring their first fruits, if you will, their tithes and their offerings as a way to glorify you this morning, to pray to you this morning, Father, in word and in spirit. And Father, we pray that you open our eyes and our minds this morning as well as we are about to receive your word. 
Father, convict us this morning where we need to be convicted. Father, if there are individuals here today that know some of your clear commands and yet are refusing to follow them, Lord, I pray that today be the day that they repent of their sins. And Father, that they trust in you and that conviction of the Spirit to follow you wherever you may call them to go. And that we as a church family be a praying church for all the ministries here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church. Father, open our eyes and our ears and soften our hearts to be transformed this morning by this text. Father, I pray that you help my lisping and my stammering tongue this morning. Father, as we learned last week, the preaching has, of the Word has no power unless the Spirit uses it to convict sinners. Father, I pray this morning that I decrease and that you increase, that your Spirit uses the preaching of this word this morning to convict people of sins and to draw them closer to you like never before. And it's a work that only your Spirit can do, Father, and we pray and we pray and we pray that you do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this, point number one. Christian, if the word of God instructs it, then know that you have been called to obey it. Christian, if the word of God instructs it, then know that you have been called to obey it. Verses 12 through 20, which reads, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered... They went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So as we open here in verse 12, keep in mind, church, that Jesus Christ, prior to his ascension, back in verse 4, told his apostles that they were not to depart from Jerusalem, but instead were to wait there for the promise of the Father. Again, that promise being the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thus, in light of that, Jesus' apostles then, as we see in verse 12, returned back to Jerusalem. And that they came, verse 12, from the mount called Olivet, or from the Mount of Olives, 
which as we learn here, church, was the location where Jesus Christ ascended from into heaven. And that it was also, verse 12, a Sabbath day journey away from Jerusalem, which is probably referring here, according to Jewish and rabbinic tradition, to about a three-quarters of a mile journey. And thus when they, Jesus' apostles, entered the city of Jerusalem, for they then, verse 13, went up to the upper room where they were staying. This upper room potentially being the room where Jesus' apostles had the last supper with Jesus Christ, prior to him being betrayed back in Mark chapter 14, or maybe even the room where some of Jesus' apostles were located when the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to them back in Luke chapter 24. Either way, as we see here in verse 13, Jesus' apostles now were back in Jerusalem and were located at this time in an upper room. Those apostles being, verse 13, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Obviously, leaving out here, church, Judas Iscariot, who had ultimately at this time betrayed Jesus Christ. And as we go on to read in verse 14, that all these apostles of Jesus Christ, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Or as the CSB puts it, all were continually united in prayer. With, verse 14, the women. The women referring here apparently to those who had traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem with Jesus Christ, as Luke chapter 23 notes, which seemingly included the likes of Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, as Luke 24 notes. And yet the apostles here, church, for they were not only together with these women here, but they were also with, as we go on to see in verse 14, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Jesus' brothers being, as we see in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, James and Joseph, Judas and Simon. And that it was in those days, referring here in verse 15 to the days between the ascension of Jesus Christ and the day of Pentecost, that Peter then, verse 15, stood up among the brothers and said to them in verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The scripture that had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, likely alluding here, church, to the scripture that the apostle Peter is about to quote from the Psalms in verse 20, which concerned or foretold of the fate of Judas Iscariot and the need to replace that of Judas Iscariot. Judas being the guy, verse 16, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus Christ. In essence, when Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 22, and who was also, verse 17, numbered among the apostles and was allotted his share in this ministry. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, who was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. To which the author of Acts, Dr. Luke, for he then offers a digression of sorts, or a 
narrative comment of sorts about this aforementioned Judas Iscariot. As we see in verse 18, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Referring here to how Judas, in effect, indirectly acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And I say that because, as we see in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 8, that when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as the burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. In short, Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness by the way of the chief priest, who used the 30 pieces of silver originally given to Judas for his betrayal of Jesus Christ, but that Judas ultimately brought back to them to buy the potter's field, apparently in Judas's name. A field called, as we see in Matthew 27, 8, the field of blood, because it was seemingly bought with blood money. And that this Judas also, then verse 18, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. To which you might be sitting there this morning thinking, but wait a second, for how is that even possible? Because didn't we just hear in Matthew chapter 27 that Judas, after throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, that he departed and went out and hanged himself. And yet here in Acts chapter 1, we see that Judas fell headlong, or as the CSB puts it, fell head first, and that his body then burst open and his intestines spilled out. And thus is this some kind of contradiction then that we see here in the scriptures. And the answer to that question concerning the details here about the death and the fate of Judas Iscariot as seen in the Gospel of Matthew and in the book of Acts for they most certainly do not contradict each other here, but instead actually complement each other here. And I say that because, yes, Judas did indeed hang himself, but that seemingly the rope in which Judas used to hang himself, that that rope then likely broke. Perhaps, as one scholar notes, after Judas was already dead and that his body had already started decomposing which the breaking of the rope apparently calls then Judas's body to fall headlong or headfirst, possibly down some kind of cliff or onto some kind of rocks, which seemingly led to Judas's body bursting open with his bowels or intestines then gushing out. And as we see here in the text in verse 19, it also seems to allude here or suggest that Judas likely died then in the same field that was bought with his own money by the chief priest. Again, that field being the field of blood. To which the apostle Peter then, as we see in verse 20, he quotes from two different psalms. The first psalm being Psalm 69, 25, 
where it reads in verse 20, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one left to dwell in it. And the second psalm being Psalm 109.8, where it reads in verse 20, let another take his office. Since, as Albert Moeller points out, Psalm 69.25 prophesied the inevitable outcome that would come to Judas and his property. Whereas in that psalm, David indicated that the house of the one who betrayed Christ would become desolate and that no one would dwell in it. In other words, that Judas's life and legacy would be completely annihilated. Additionally, Peter quoted Psalm 109.8, and it's at this point that Peter's intention then becomes clear. For Judas must be replaced among the twelve apostles. For Peter recognized the significance of having twelve apostles and not eleven, since that number mirrored the twelve tribes of Israel. And just as there had been twelve sons of Jacob as the foundation of God's Old Testament people, so there must also be twelve apostles as the foundation of God's New Testament people. And thus by quoting the psalmist's prophecy about a replacement, Peter exercised leadership, but not on the basis of his own authority, but instead on the basis of God's authority found in Scripture. And not only that, church, but as Tony Merida also goes on to point out in light of verse 20, that God wants us to give first priority and attention to what he has revealed. And he made it clear through his words that there were to be 12 apostles. See Matthew 19, verse 28. And thus because of that, the apostles then made choices and took action with that directive in mind. And similarly, God has also clarified many things for us in his word as well. Therefore, in light of those clear instructions, for we too then should do what the Bible says. And thus, what a simple and straightforward and yet oh so important point of application that we can glean from the text here this morning. That point of application being that if the word of God clearly instructs something Christian, then you should do it. And if the word of God clearly forbids or tells you not to do something Christian, then you should not do it. And I say all of that because it just blows my mind to see so many self-professing Christians out there today, individuals who say that they are Christians or who identify themselves as Christians and to go to church and say that they love Jesus Christ and that the Bible is right and true and good and yet to at the same time just blatantly disobey so many of the clear instructions given to them in the Word of God. Because the fact of the matter is, if the Word of God says it, instructs it, or commands it, then you have been called Christian to believe it, obey it, and follow it, no matter how you might feel about it. And thus lovingly then, let me encourage you all here this morning to be honest with yourself concerning what the God-breathed scriptures have clearly called and commanded and instructed you to do, and to then take a good long look at your life and see if there are any parts in your life, Christian, that are not consistently in line with the ways of God or any areas of your life, Christian, that are not routinely submitting to the will of God. And maybe it's that unforgiving spirit of yours toward your children. 
Or maybe it's those sexually explicit photos of yours on your iPad or those fits of anger towards your wife. Or maybe even it's that grumbling spirit of yours toward others, those drunken evenings out with your friends, or that foul mouth of yours that always seems to come out when you lose that of your temper. Because if you see brother Christian, sister Christian, any of those areas in your life where you are clearly not faithfully following the will, the commands, and the clear instructions of your God, then lovingly, Christian, you need to repent of your sins and ask your God to give you the grace you need to turn from those sins and to conform your will to that of his own. Since following in faith the ways of Jesus Christ, the commandments of Christ, and the clear and plainly stated instructions of Jesus Christ as revealed to you in the Word of God. For that is, Christian, make no mistake about it, not only what is pleasing to your God, but it's also then, Christian, for your own good as well. Which brings us to point number two. By the sovereign hand of God, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas as the twelfth apostle. By the sovereign hand of God, Matthias was chosen to replace Judas as the twelfth apostle. Verses 21 through 26. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed And said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So following the apostle Peter making clear that Judas had to be replaced as the twelfth apostle by citing Psalm 109, verse 8, in verse 20. The apostle Peter then goes on to lay out, as we see in verses 21 and 22, the necessary qualifications, if you will, for Judas's replacement. Those qualifications being that he must have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. In essence, as John MacArthur put it, he would have to have witnessed the Lord's entire earthly ministry from its inception at his baptism to its culmination at the ascension. And the second requirement was that the one selected be a witness with the other eleven of his resurrection. He must have seen the resurrected Christ since the resurrection was a central theme of apostolic preaching. Therefore, all the apostles were to be personal eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. And thus, with those 
qualifications laid out. For two men then, church, were put forward as potential replacements for Judas as the twelfth apostle. Those two men being, as we see in verse 23, Joseph, called Barsabbas, Barsabbas meaning son of the Sabbath in Aramaic, and who was also called Justice, which would have been his Roman name church, and the other being a man by the name of Matthias. However, in order for one of these two men to replace Judas Iscariot as the twelfth apostle, for he not only had to just meet the qualifications laid out here in verses 21 and 22 by the apostle Peter, but additionally, he also needed to be chosen by the Lord Jesus as well, just as the other 11 apostles all previously were. And thus, in light of that, as we see then in verses 24 and 25, for they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. To which they, the apostles then, verse 26, cast lots for them. And that they probably here, church, had two rocks, one with Joseph's name on it, and the other with Matthias's name on it. And that both of these rocks then were likely put into some kind of jar or into some kind of container. And then when those rocks were shaken around and ultimately out of the jar or out of the container, for the first rock then that would have come out would have been deemed as the Lord's choice. Since as we see in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And thus by this practice of casting lots, a practice, mind you, church, that was commonly used by the people of Israel, for Jesus' apostles then, verse 26, casted lots for them in order to seek here the Lord's will as to who should ultimately replace Judas as the twelfth apostle. And as we see in verse 26, for the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And yet before we close point number two this morning, church, for I do want to make one thing absolutely clear to you all concerning this practice of casting lots. That being, for this was, right here in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, the last time in the New Testament church that we see the people of God using this practice of casting lots in order to make a decision. Since as numerous commentators and scholars point out here, that with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that this type of practice of casting lots, we can assume, became unnecessary and obsolete. Since the people of God then now had the Spirit of God dwelling inside them, and thus enlightening them, guiding them, directing them, and giving wisdom to them. And thus, practically speaking here, church, for if you have a big decision then in your life that you have to make, a decision about, say, whether to take the job or not, 
or to switch careers or not, or to buy the house or not, buy the car or not, or to move to the new country or not, my counsel then to you all here this morning wouldn't be to just randomly cast lots in order to make that decision, or to just whimsically flip a coin in order to make that decision, or even to just play eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tiger by its toe in order to make that decision. But instead, I would counsel you, Chris, to pray and to pray and to then pray some more, all while willingly letting the Spirit of God teach you and guide you, counsel you and direct you all according to the very will of God, all so that you can then, Christian, make a decision that is both wise and glorifying to your most holy God. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, For I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who is here first. And to share with you at this time, non-Christian, who exactly this man with these 12 apostles named Jesus Christ truly is. And this man named Jesus Christ, for he truly is non-Christian, the Son of God, who came into this world as truly God and as truly man to live and to dwell amongst us and to save the children of God from their very sins. And he did that, non-Christian, by initially living a life here on earth that was perfect and that it was free from any kind of evil or wickedness, transgression or sins. And thus because of that, he, Jesus Christ then, fulfilled the law of God perfectly and completely and without any kind of offense and he did it, non-Christian, all for the very children of God. However, that was not all that this sinless son of God, Jesus Christ, accomplished while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because he, Jesus Christ, not only kept the law of God, all for the very children of God, but he, Jesus Christ, also then paid the price for their very sins as well. And thus being that the wage of their sin or the cost of their sin is that of death, Romans 6.23, for he, Jesus Christ, also then willingly was nailed to and crucified, killed and crushed on an old rugged cross at Calvary as the propitiation or as the wrath appeasing sacrifice for their very sins, even though he himself, non-Christian, never, ever sinned. And you know what, non-Christian? It worked. And that the atoning, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on that cross at Calvary, for it not only satisfied the justice of our holy God, but also appeased then, non-Christian, the wrath of our holy God all toward his sinful children as well. And thus, because of all that, three days later, then this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, for he didn't just stay dead or buried in some grave, but instead, three days later, He, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the 
price for your sin, who died for your sin, and can clothe you then in his righteousness, in his perfect life, and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who was here today. For as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I'd like to do so in light of verse 14, which reads, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And thus in light of that, Jonathan Redden, for he wrote this, that all ministers of God and all faithful believers should be men and women of prayer. For many ministries have gone awry because of a lack of prayer. And fruitful ministries have been accompanied by much time spent in prayer. For Jesus himself spent a night in prayer before his original appointment of the apostles. And such was the measure and impact of his prayer life that his own disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. And oh, what a wonderful point of application for us to leave here with this morning, church. Especially as we as a church family continue to grow numerically. For as Pastor Ricardo shared with me last week after the service, that we had about 160 people here last week for corporate worship. To which I heard another congregant joke that it might be time to look for a bigger sanctuary. And to which another visitor shared with me about how wonderful it is to see how God continues to bless and to bless this church with more and more people each week. And don't get me wrong, for it is exciting and an absolute blessing from God to see all the numerical growth that we have had here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church. However, brother Christian, sister Christian, simply because we have experienced a season of numerical growth here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, for that does not mean then that we can now become complacent or self-satisfied as a church family. And I say that because as I read those words from Jonathan Redden this week in my study, particularly the words that many ministries have gone awry because of a lack of prayer. For I was reminded that we too, as a church family, need to be continually and constantly and ceaselessly united and praying together for the ministries of this church. Praying that the gospel never stops being proclaimed here. Praying that we continue to sing and to worship corporately all according to the word of God here. Praying that our elders and pastors remain blameless above reproach here. Praying that our life groups foster an environment of discipleship here. Praying that our Bible studies help us grow in Christ's likeness here. And praying that our children's church point our children to Jesus Christ here. That our youth group aid our teens in sanctification 
here, and that's all of our ministries, no matter how big or how small, that they continually seek to glorify God and not that of self here. And thus lovingly, let me remind and exhort and encourage you all here today to commit yourselves to consistently praying for the ministries here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, praying that the Lord may keep them gospel-focused, sound in doctrine, and grounded in his word. And furthermore, praying that the Lord may use them to sanctify his people, encourage his people, increase the wisdom of his people, and to help his people more faithfully walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Since we have a God church family who will not only be faithful to hear us when we pray to him, but who will also then be faithful to answer all of our prayers all according to the perfect counsel of his will as well. And thus because of that, for let us all then, as a church family, pray fervently and consistently, dependently and deeply, boldly and without ceasing, day after day after day, for the faithfulness and for the fruitfulness of all the ministries here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, also that we as a church body can be edified and so that our God who is in heaven may be glorified. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body be faithful to continue to pray and to pray and to pray for all the ministries here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, praying that none of our ministries here stray from sound doctrine, reject biblical teaching, deny the words of Jesus Christ, or veer off toward another gospel but that instead all the ministries here, and that all the leaders of those ministries here, that they remain faithful to the word, hold fast to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, and steadfastly persevere in preaching and in teaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. For help us, Father, to be united in prayer together today and going forward, that the ministries here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church, that they do not go awry, but that they instead remain faithful and steadfast and devoted to your son, Jesus Christ, above all else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for the gift of this church family. And Father, we thank you for the numerical growth that we have seen. But Father, let us as a church family be committed to praying for spiritual growth among each other. Lord, that the ministries here foster spiritual growth in the youth, in the children, in corporate worship, in life groups, in Bible studies. Father, I've just taken aback that many ministries have gone wrong because of a lack of prayer. Father, give us a zeal to pray consistently and faithfully for this church and its ministries. That Jesus Christ be proclaimed. That your word goes forth. That your spirit convicts And that you, Father, be glorified. Father, we pray that through our ministries here, that the individuals that make up this dear body, that they grow spiritually. 
Father, let this be a prayer of each and every one of our tongues each and every day. Build this church up, we pray, Father, that they be edified and that through all of our ministries that you, Father, above all else, be glorified. Do this wonderful work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.